HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Mary Izette. From Fomentabody. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're joined on the line by food writer and historian B. Wilson. B. is the author of Consider the Fork, a history of how we cook and eat, in addition to writing for publications like the London Review of Books, The Guardian, and The New York Times. Her most recent book, First Bite, How We Learn to Eat, is about the psychology of eating and based on the premise that we're not born knowing how to eat. In the book, she discusses how to develop healthy eating habits in our children, as well as how we as adults can change our own eating preferences over time, regardless of our age. First Bite won the 2016 Fortnum's Food Book of the Year and Special Accommodation at the Andre Simon Awards. And I am so very pleased that it has brought her to our show today. Hi, B. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for, for coming on. Um, I loved your book. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's what every author yeah. wants to hear. I loved it. Um, so, <laughs> okay, so what inspired you to explore this topic? I think it was two things at once, really. Um, this book was gestating by far the longest of anything I've ever written. One thought was that I had at the back of my mind for a long time, I wanted to write a book about children's food. Um, I'd been interested in school food for a long time and why so much school food wasn't wasn't very healthy and the sort of complicated ways in which we feed children. And I have three kids myself and I was struck, as every parent is with more than one child, that they all ate in such different ways, even though I felt that I'd fed them in the same way. So I wanted to investigate and kind of get to the bottom of the question of where children's food habits come from. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I just kept coming back to 
my own experiences with food and the fact that as a teenager and young adult, I'd been really unhappy about food. I would describe my relationship with food as dysfunctional. My sister was anorexic. I overate partly to compensate maybe or partly for my own reasons. Um, and then over a period of months, if not years, I somehow recalibrated my relationship with food. And I can honestly now say to my huge surprise and relief, food isn't an issue for me. I don't worry about weight. Food is a joy. And I really, so these two ideas came together of children's food, how do children learn to eat? And I thought, well, how does anyone learn to eat? Because right. so many of us as adults are still stuck in those yeah. childhood patterns. We still eat what we like. And yeah. when I had that thought, it seemed like a huge thing that was missing in our food debate. Um, you, you write that food preferences are not genetic, and you, and you um, get this, this concept out there kind of immediately. Mm. And um, you also say that they're in, instead they're shaped by a variety of factors, including someone's food environment. What are some of those factors, and how do they influence us? So the first thing I should say is when I say food preferences are not genetic, well, none of our food preferences can be genetic because we're omnivores. Mm -hmm. We're designed to live in lots of different environments. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'm not by any means saying that we all bring the same genetic experience to bear when it comes to food. So for some people, the whole experience of learning how to eat is going to be much more challenging and difficult than it is for others. One example would be kids on the autistic spectrum. We know that the vast majority of them, not all of them, but around three quarters of autistic kids struggle with eating one way or another, whether it's texture, whether it's new flavors. Um, other people are super tasters for whom bitter flavors are unbearably strong. And you can still learn to love bitter flavors as a super taster, but it's going to be hard. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying we all have the same experiences, but I'm saying the evidence shows that every single one of our specific preferences for food is not something that we're innately born with. You're not born as a broccoli lover or broccoli hater. Mm -hmm. It's something that you learn. And that seems to me to be quite a different way of thinking about things mm -hmm. to the normal way that we talk in conversation where we'll say, oh, I'm a fussy eater. I got that from my grandfather or <laughs> my brother and I both hate licorice or whatever it might yeah. be. It seems that we have this kind of view that most of this stuff is innate. Like we can't help it. And we can't help it. So we're doomed. Yeah. yeah. And actually very little of it is innate, which is great news because we're not doomed. It's just that to come back to your question about food environment, uh -huh. the problem is we're all now learning how to eat in possibly the most dysfunctional and complex food environment that humans have ever had to navigate, where we're getting messages every day to overeat. Um, and we know that humans are hugely um, suggestible to different food environments, much as we might like to believe that we're individuals making these free choices about food. Um, and so it's very, very difficult. And we also know, I mean, not everyone is overeating in the midst of this obesity crisis that we keep talking about, which I kind of wish we wouldn't use that phrase because as someone who was once overweight and really struggled with those issues, I just think it makes people feel so much worse than they already do um, about their bodies and about food. And actually, we talk about normal weight, but normal weight isn't normal anymore. Um, yeah, but isn't that, isn't that problematic from like a health perspective? It's really problematic. I'm not saying that mm -hmm. um, 
it's ideal that people are having type 2 diabetes. Not at all. I'm saying that people can absolutely recalibrate their relationship with food. People can absolutely lose weight if that's what they need and want to do. I'm just saying that by labeling it as a crisis, it might it, be. It makes people feel awful. Right. Um, and that's another aspect of the way in which we've kind of forgotten the psychology of eating, which is if you want to get people to change, don't put them on the defensive. Don't tell them what to put in their mouths. Try to lead them there through pleasure. Right. And that's something that I definitely um, ha have questions about. Um, a little bit later on in the show, but starting for, from kind of the beginning, um, according to your research, the best and easiest time to develop food preferences is when children are young and even as young as four months old, which I was super surprised to read. Um, so can you kind of give a brief overview of the, the stages of how we learn to eat and what parents can do to make a, a positive, significant impact during these early phases of child development? Well, the great news is that most of our likes and dislikes are just a facet of exposure. So we love the flavors which are familiar to us. And there have been amazing studies done showing that even in utero, a fetus is experiencing flavor. There was a study done, a famous one, by these scientists called Manella and Beauchamp, who gave pregnant women a lot of carrot juice to drink in the last trimester of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And they found that their babies, when they were born and had their first bites of solid food, actually preferred carrot-flavored cereal. So if you imagine that process for anything that you're eating during those nine months, you know, eating it, it's not always easy. I'm not saying you should beat yourself up. If you're one of those women, I've got friends who just couldn't keep any food down for those nine months. They were so nauseous. They were just struggling to eat dry crackers and yeah. drinking milk. So I'm not saying it's, it's not a disaster if... If that's what's happened, the good news is that the power of exposure works on humans at any age, but it's obviously a lot easier if you do it when a child is young. And it amazed me, this is quite new research, um, that people have discovered that there seems to be this thing which is christened the flavor window between around four and seven months when babies are more receptive to new flavors than they ever will be again. So if you wanted, I mean, I wish I'd known this. I had no idea about this when my right. three were children. And they still, yeah, they are children now, but two of them are teenagers. They've just about turned out okay. So it's, it's not a disaster <laughs> if you miss the flavor window. But had I known about it, I absolutely would have been giving them a smorgasbord of as many different vegetables as possible between four and seven months, rather than usually people start off on really bland flavors like baby rice. Right. Okay. So, I mean, should you be seasoning um, this food at all with, you know, salt and other spices or should it just no, be no, kind no. of the vegetable No, no, no. You definitely parades? shouldn't be given salt because a baby's um, kidneys can't cope with salt under the age of one. Um, and spices, I don't think you particularly need to be giving spices at that age. I mean, you over about six, seven months, you could. Uh -huh. But um, I think the key thing is... If you could, at that age, get babies used to the pure taste of broccoli, the pure mm -hmm. taste of zucchini, the pure taste of carrot, so that when they potentially go through this phase that many, many toddlers go through, around the age of 18 months, it's called neophobia. I mean, parents know it as fussiness or pickiness, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it's actually quite a, it was originally a useful evolutionary stage it was if you imagine hunter-gatherer societies 
the point at which a child is toddling off for themselves and first grabbing food that the parent can't control, they need to be wary. Mm -hmm. There are toxins out there. The problem is that our children are still wary, but it prevents them from eating bitter vegetables and things that and unfamiliar would, foods would be useful. Yeah. yeah. So what's the, what's, what is the potential remedy if you have a particularly finicky eater starting from around, you know, 18 months or, or two years old? I mean, I think it's really difficult to talk about these things because when we say things like finicky or fussy, that covers a whole spectrum of conditions. And there's a, as I say, totally normal phase of neophobia. So if, if you just think your child is probably somewhere on the kind of not too extreme end, mm -hmm. the first thing is, I mean, I know how difficult this is because it's so emotional and I got it very wrong with my youngest child who was born with cleft palate and I became very emotional about the fact that he was suddenly eating a really limited diet and I just found it very upsetting so my heart goes out to anyone who's stuck in those tea time battles so do as I say not as I say but <laughs> patience but this, the thing that again I wish I had known and I did find out when my son was age three or four and I did it with him and it was amazing the extent to which it worked on him is this concept was pioneered by um, scientists at University College London called tiny tastes and it sounds too simple to be true but if you take the idea that we love the foods that we know mm -hmm. you're in a kind of catch-22 with a fussy toddler because they only love what they know, so they don't want to try something new. So how do you get them to try something new without it being a horrible experience? Because they hate that broccoli. They really don't want to put it in their mouth. And they're afraid of it. They're genuinely afraid of it. It's a phobia. It's like asking them to swallow spiders or something. Right. But if you can make the vegetable or whatever it is being tasted as small as a pea or even as small as a grain of rice, it's suddenly possible for the child to put it in their mouth. And I thought, that's not going to work. And the right. idea is you do it every day, preferably outside of mealtimes because it's less emotional. Mm -hmm. And you offer them a sticker at the end of it. And even if they just lick it and spit it out, right. that's fine. They're experiencing it. I was astonished, anecdotally, the extent to which this worked on my child who previously would have just been bursting into tears at the right. sight of a cherry tomato. <laughs> but I mean, it isn't just my child. There's lots of evidence They've worked in families, in schools. They've done it in the UK, in Greece, in Portugal. There are signs that pretty much any child this will work on. My big proviso, why I said finickiness and fussiness covers a whole spectrum, is that there are children for whom the process of learning to enjoy new foods is much more problematic, who are more on some kind of feeding disorder spectrum. Mm -hmm. If you feel your child is going days and really eating a very, very limited diet and you're worried that they're not gaining weight, you should absolutely go and see a doctor. Don't listen to people. Sometimes well-meaning advisors will say, oh, they'll eat when they're hungry. That's right. true for lots of kids. For some kids, it isn't. Feeding clinics see children who are so terrified of new foods that if someone enters the room carrying a plate of unfamiliar food, before they even see it, they spontaneously gag or even vomit. I mean, that's... I mean, it's... That's the extreme, yeah. That's extreme, yeah, but yeah. there's a lot of that out there, and a lot of it's hidden, and people don't talk about it. So if you feel your child is even teetering towards that, absolutely seek help. Right, right. 
Um, what? So I, you mentioned stickers as a reward, and I yeah. and and that seems very um, deliberate. So is there this idea that rewarding with food is um, somehow detrimental? Yeah. So the old thing of saying eat your main course or eat your vegetables and you can have some chocolate or mm-hmm. candy. It's not a great idea. We've probably all done it at one time or other, but the problem is, uh, psychologists call it the over-justification effect. It makes you like the chocolate more and like the broccoli less. So it's not a very good plan if your end goal is to raise a child who actually will choose broccoli of their own free will one day. Um, But if you reward with stickers, for the child who, as you've just said, they're genuinely scared of the food, they actually do feel quite brave, then that's an effective thing to do. What you shouldn't be doing is, if you've got a kid who already enjoys a range of foods, don't suddenly start giving them stickers and saying, great job, you ate your dinner. Like, that should just be, you know, they're enjoying dinner, that's its own reward. But if they're someone who doesn't enjoy dinner and they've bravely tried something, that definitely deserves a sticker and it seems to work. Um, okay, so I want to I wanna turn to discussing the topic of children's food, so maybe slightly older, older kids. And this concept that kids need to eat different foods than adults is something that I have personally been super frustrated by for a long time, and mm. I kind of go crazy when I see a kid's menu mm, at I restaurants. I kind of go crazy when I see a kid's menu, and yet it's so normal, isn't it? We right. just yeah. kind of accept the idea out there in our culture that kids will only eat grilled cheese sandwiches and french fries and hot dogs and and we haven't noticed that we've actually created that limited repertoire for them and then we complain that they're fussy and we kind of (laughs) wonder why um and i think it's it's one of the many areas of parenting which is really difficult because actually as a new parent you you often feel at a total loss and you're just looking for cues of how to behave from the outside and if you're going to restaurants and the only food they're offering as kids food is this limited quite junky repertoire you're thinking oh that's kids food that's what I should be feeding my child and it's partly self-perpetuating because so much of what we do as parents is driven by nostalgia. We kind of remember some idealized version of childhood that we had ourselves, and we think we want to be... I mean, I definitely felt this strongly with my oldest child. I've got big age gaps, so I was quite young when I had my oldest one. I remember just thinking, oh, I want him to have all those wonderful breakfast cereals that I kind of dreamed of and wasn't allowed. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of looked at the sugar content and thought, no, I really don't want him to eat this. Yeah, But there was part of me that was still a child that kind of I wanted him to be happy and giving someone food that they really love and seeing that smile it's one of the single quickest ways that you can feel that you're expressing love as a parent and that's really problematic um, right. And you talk about that in the book in the context of um, of China and specifically mm. Chinese grandparents who are often um, the main feeders um, in the household and how um, basically the desire to show um, love through food um, has caused a quite serious obesity epidemic. Um, what are some of the broader lessons that we can learn about about their experience? Yeah, I found that study quite heartbreaking because here are grandparents who are, they are dutiful, they're self-sacrificing, they love their grandchildren, they want to do the best for them, they are absolutely not trying to damage their health, but they remember famine and they remember that if you overfeed a child in famine, they will grow up big and strong. 
and they haven't quite noticed somehow that the food environment has changed. I think the big lesson to take from that, I mean, so often when we're discussing what's gone so disastrously wrong with our food and why we're being sickened by it, in so many cases and how we can change we say we should go back to the wisdom of our grandparents and to me the Chinese grandparent example is it's not that our grandparents weren't very wise but they were very wise for the times in which they lived mm-hmm. and we need new feeding and eating skills because it's a completely different situation no one has found themselves eating in a situation such as we find ourselves now right. so one example would be our grandparents quite rightly had a horror of waste and it's true that we waste colossal amounts of food today mm-hmm. but one of the areas that i think we should loosen up about is the idea that you should clean everything on your plate i mean the plates have got bigger mm-hmm. and so have the children i mean <laughs> we need to actually teach people how to listen to their own bodies and stop when you're full um and obviously if you can take the rest of the food home with you and therefore not waste it that's even better um, so speaking of overfeeding, you, you know, you say that there is a, a big danger of force feeding and overfeeding. Um, but yet in so many cultures, having a chubby baby or toddler is often seen as like a healthy thing. Um, is this not true? Are kids supposed to be like thinner, I guess, when they're when they're babies? I don't think it's that kids are meant to be skinny when they're babies. I mean, there is that wonderful stage when they're kind of aged about one to two and they've got sort of folds rolls and, <laughs> and it's just they're beautiful i mean it's i'm not but it, it it is problematic i mean there is evidence that even some doctors and healthcare professionals now can no longer spot an obese child right because people being bigger it has become normalized it's very very difficult mm-hmm. um when everyone around you in a given community is that much bigger it's difficult to spot how much is just that cute chubbiness, which is actually a necessarily reserve of adipose fat, which every toddler should have. You know, I'm, not, I'm absolutely not saying you should be feeding babies. There was that terrible sort of phase, I think it was called something like muesli anorexia, in the 1980s when it was the low-fat craze and some parents were kind of feeding their kids skim milk and... Um, not giving them enough nourishment. I'm absolutely not saying that. But um, I am saying, um, yeah, when it gets to the stage that so many kids are obese before they're even out of elementary school, something's gone wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what about, how can you tell if you're overfeeding a baby in between the time when they're breastfeeding, which is, you know, they kind of naturally mm. gravitate or when they're done, you, you know, um, and the time when they're able to verbally communicate. I mean, one of the things that, one of the single pieces of research I came across that most amazed me was that up to the age of about three, for some kids it might be two, babies do, kids do have an ability to self-regulate with food. So if you give them a too big portion at that age, it's fine because they'll just reject it. And that's the point where sometimes parents are getting frustrated saying, oh, they're not eating up the food I've given them. And that's partly, it's very hard as an adult to judge just how small an amount of food is for a child. It looks too small because you're judging by your own appetite. But that's not a problem because they will reject it. Over the age of two or three, and this is cross-cultural, there have been studies done in the States, studies done in China, um, it seems that we as human beings lose that instinct about how much to eat. Um, And unless we relearn it, we may never um, 
have that cue about how to actually stop eating when we're full, which is in some ways the most important eating skill that anyone can learn. I know I totally did not have it when I was an overeating right. teenager. There was just no stop button. I wasn't ever eating because I was hungry. It was because I was bored or, or I was sad it. or I yeah. was depressed or I just yeah. liked the taste of chocolate. I, I still haven't gotten there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, none of us have probably got there completely yeah. because there are so many opportunities to eat. Opportunities to eat, yeah. Right, our food and environment And so many reasons is, to eat, because food yeah. is so delicious and wonderful. And it's ubiquitous. It's, it's, it is absolutely yeah. everywhere, like from the hardware store to, you know, the the local bodega, right? You We're constantly bombarded with food choices. But I have to say, moderation is a concept that's, like, totally lost on me. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I mean, also, feasting is a kind of wonderful thing. So you don't always want to be saying no. Right. But having sort of change my own relationship with food it's definitely good to reach the point where you think you're stopping not out of some kind of self-denial or because you're on a diet but you're just kind of listening to your own body's cues and thinking oh I'm kind of full now and it's possible to reach if you do that often enough and there was a very interesting study done with preschoolers which I discuss in the book by someone called Susan Johnson Mm -hmm. where she used dolls that had differing degrees kind of fake stomachs filled with salt and some of them had full stomachs some of them had half full some were empty and she found that she could train the kids over a six-week period they put their hands on the doll's stomachs and then on their own stomachs at snack time and they could say i'm like this doll i'm really full i'm going to stop eating or i'm like this doll i'm only half full i'm going to have a bit more of my snack and that to me, seems to be the most useful skill you could learn because it's not demonizing food. It's not saying you shouldn't eat. It's just saying there are kind of natural rhythms to food that maybe we've lost. Um, Right. And I think, you know, as a society, we have a total aversion to feeling hungry. And let's face it, it's not it's not a fun feeling, but you also write that feeling a, a little hungry is okay. Um, and I guess I, I wondered when I read that, does this apply to children as well? I think feeling a little hungry as a child is totally okay. I mean, I remember as a child, I mean, I'm just probably the end of the generation where parents were saying, don't snack between meals, but there was still that thing of you, you weren't starving. If you just ate three meals a day and maybe were given a snack at four in the afternoon after school you weren't actually kind of fainting from exhaustion but now I mean I include myself in this I think part of modern parenting is it's very hard to say no to any request your child makes it somehow seems more difficult for some reason um, and I know that I'm endlessly grappling with my son my youngest one who plays a lot of sport and he's endlessly asking one more snack one more snack yeah. Just getting him to wait half an hour for dinner is sometimes a struggle. But I think it's so important to establish that there is some connection between hunger and eating. Because otherwise, if you're only eating for fun, for recreation, for the feeling in your mouth, um, that's really dangerous. And conversely, if you're kind of if you don't have the connection between hunger and food. You can also get in this kind of guilty state, which I also used to be in when I was endlessly going on diets. I'm not mm-hmm. allowed to eat this. Right. But hunger is telling you, actually, your body needs something. You can eat now. And right. that's a wonderful feeling. You, you kind of actually feel you've earned your lunch. 
Um, okay, so we're going to have to take a very quick commercial break um, to hear our word for, a word from our sponsors. But when I get when we get back, I want to um, talk about the role of siblings in shaping your food preferences and also how to go about making big changes to our food culture in general. Stay tuned. Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Rectech, and this track is called Blasian Fish Cakes. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do. But the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. All right. Um, we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're talking with B. Wilson about her most recent book, First Bite. Um, okay, so I, turning to the topic of brothers and sisters... Um, I I love this chapter because I just for an example I always joke about how I'm a competitive eater because I grew up with brothers and uh, I had to be quick on the draw. To get, that's funny. Yeah, that's absolutely fits get, with the yeah. theme of the chapter. <laughs> yeah. So what are the you know I was always like terrified I wasn't going to get enough food. Um, but what are some of the other ways that siblings influence your your own eating habits? My own eating habits. I mean, or our our eating habits in general. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) And I think there are so many different ways, and obviously it depends what the sibling dynamic is. So, as you say, you had brothers, so you had to kind of be quick. Whereas Mm. there are other sibling dynamics where siblings are copying each other. There was a big Dutch survey which was kind of worrying, suggesting that um, often if one sibling had disordered eating habits, that the other sibling would copy. But surprisingly, with Sisters, it seemed that the older sister would often copy the younger sister, maybe because subliminally she felt she wanted to have the prepubescent figure that her younger sister had, which is again really sad, yeah, really sad and really worrying and really indicative of lots of other ways that our eating has gone wrong. Another thing that goes on with siblings, and you wouldn't think this would happen in modern families in this day and age, but there's lots of evidence that it does is that boys and girls get fed very differently. And there still seems to be a sense that boys need hearty man food, they need to be built up, maybe we don't need to make too much of a fuss whether they eat vegetables or not. And there's a lot of evidence that this is the case in countries as far removed as Thailand, but also the States and also France. And then with girls, there's somehow a few... um, And part of the issue here is that 
mothers tend to be the ones doing the feeding rather than fathers, not in every family, and that naturally enough we project our own fears more onto a child of the own of our same sex Mm -hmm. and there seems to be a lot of evidence that girls get a disproportionate amount of pressure about their figures to lose weight right Um, their food is restricted more than boys food is and the sad thing apart from the fact that i think it just makes dinner times unhappy occasions it's not very nice to be (laughs) pressurizing someone about food no it backfires horribly. There's a lot of evidence. The more you pressurize someone about the weight, the more likely they are to Push have back. gained weight five years later. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So um, so what are the... You also talked about like how women or girls are not getting the types of food that they eat because of this, this reinforced stereotype that girls shouldn't eat the same kinds of, quote, manly food. How are some, what are some ways that this um, backfires in particular? So I suddenly had this big realization that it's crazy. We're feeding boys and girls in exactly the wrong way. The single biggest nutritional shortfall in our diets, which hardly ever gets talked about, is the iron deficiency of girls. And this is something across the world. You know, Some people have full-blown anemia. Lots of girls do. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot more, even in really affluent societies, even in Scandinavia and places that seem to be practically perfect, large numbers of girls are iron deficient, resulting in tiredness, resulting in headaches, cognitive problems. Um, and it's really easy to fix just by getting more iron in your diet. So this idea that we say that the ones who should have red meat and hearty meals are boys is exactly wrong. Girls are the ones, if anyone should be eating red meat, and some people would say no one should, but red meat or its equivalent in other iron-rich vegan foods like pumpkin seeds and blackstrap molasses and dark bread. There's plenty of good vegetarian sources too, but girls are the ones who need to be built up. And boys, we seem to be feeding this delusion that they don't need as many vegetables. And both boys and girls are suffering from obesity, but boys are suffering somewhat more in a lot of developed societies. So it doesn't work out too well for either lot. What about the concept that girls should be eating less? Um, You know, in terms of the differences between brothers and sisters that you write about, I mean, shouldn't I mean, isn't it like a biological reality that that boys need more calories in a day? If you took um, an average boy and an average girl of the same age, average height, yes, annoyingly, I find this annoying, boys do need a little bit more. But, and I, I struggle with this in my own family because my oldest son is nearly seven foot, wow, wow. age 17, um, and then my middle child who's my girl is 13 and she's just average height so if i if i gave her the same ginormous portion that i give him that would clearly be wrong it wouldn't be generosity it would just be wrong they have different needs but if you took a girl that's playing hockey five times a week and you took a boy that's just playing five hours of video games a day probably the girl has greater calorific needs so yes to some extent boys need a little bit more but they definitely don't need as much more as it seems that they're being given it's not like their bodies are crying out for burgers and fries and whatever else it may be that we wrongly think is boy food and there are places where i found that in a lot of the middle east um, and in particular in kuwait boys are suffering terribly 
both from diet-related ill health and from disordered attitudes to eating. So in Kuwait, the vast majority of teenage boys are overweight or obese. Mm-hmm. There was an interesting piece of research done showing they're really unhappy about it. Um, and it's partly what has happened, a bit as in China, when you have this traditional value system colliding with the modern food supply. So in the Middle East, there's a view boys must be given sort of hospitality. They must be given generous portions of everything, um, which might have been okay when the generous portions were traditionally made Middle Eastern cuisine, but when it's kind of ribs and huge amounts of takeout pizza. Like westernized food. Yeah, it, westernized food is really hit in Kuwait, and the combination between that and the traditional value system is playing out in these ways which are really making a whole generation of boys both unhealthy and unhappy. Um, okay, so so talking about, you write about um, that there are kind of different feeding styles. So we're going, we're jumping back a little bit to when kids are younger. Um, what are the four buckets? Can you tell us the four buckets of feeding styles um, that parents tend to use? And which one in your, um, conc- did you conclude um, from your research was the most effective for developing healthy eaters? So there are sort of three big ways you could say that people feed. Um, and obviously, there are many more ways than this. I mean, every family is completely different. But um, you could be an authoritarian feeder, which means that you say, I know best for you. I'm going to restrict all junk food. Um, I, I'm going to ignore your needs to a certain extent or anything you say you want to eat because I know best. You could be an indulgent feeder, which is to say you're very responsive to the child's needs and you're constantly trying to find the foods that please them. But equally, there are no boundaries. So that's a bit like the Chinese grandparents who want to reward every piece of homework and every good thing that a child does in a day with food. And food becomes a kind of proxy for love. Well, there's lots of signs that both of these styles um, of feeding result in poor health outcomes for children. There's a third style which is much worse than either of them, which is neglectful feeding. I mean, clearly neglectful is the worst of all. Like, neglectful is, as a child, you grow up in a household where maybe the refrigerator isn't even stocked with food. Maybe nobody cares if you actually came in and ate an evening meal. Um, Kids in those households, that's really bad. Those are the people we kind of think food would be really bad for, and it definitely is. And those people not only are in danger of suffering malnutrition in the short term, but they're likely to grow up with complicated relationships with hunger. They're likely to be more overweight, more obese. But the surprise is that both the authoritarian and indulgent styles of feeding are also associated in various studies with poor health outcomes. The problem with the authoritarian style is that it gives the child no chance to learn about what their body is actually experiencing. It comes back to this thing about hunger cues. There was there have been studies done showing that when mothers very strictly um, restrict junk food and of their toddlers, who were girls, mm-hmm. and the girls were left alone in a room full of pretzels, M&Ms, every kind of candy, um, those girls ate a lot more than those who had mothers who were slightly more laid back, which kind of makes sense. We want what we can't have. It's that forbidden fruit thing. Right. But equally, authoritarian 
sorry, equally indulgent parenting, I mean, this seems more obvious, indulgent parenting also doesn't seem a great way to go. I mean, what's interesting is that there have been studies done suggesting that depending on what culture you're growing up in, you might have different outcomes. So it seems that among Chinese-American families, the authoritarian style of saying, I know best, here's the food, it's on the table, eat it, that mm-hmm. seems to work okay. Whereas um, in other families, American families, it doesn't seem to work so well. The style that does seem to work well takes the best elements of both. So it would be described, one way of describing it would be high warmth, but also high control. So the best thing about the authoritarian style is that you're controlling the food supply and saying, I'm not going to have too much junk in the house if I don't want my child to eat loads of cookies and pretzels. I could just not buy them as much. Right. Um, So that would be the way to go with the control element. But then the high warmth is saying, well, I'm not going to be totally authoritarian and force you to put this in your mouth. I'm going to listen to your needs. So obviously it's a balancing act, and none of us gets it completely right. And as a parent, mealtimes, yeah, to reiterate, they can be some of the most emotional and trying times of the day and we're tired and we haven't necessarily slept um, <laughs> but the ideal to aim for would be you more or less control the food supply but then you trust the child to make good choices um okay so i i want to turn to one of the more optimistic points in the book for those who may be um the, the you know that yeah. overwhelmed parent um and you know one of the things you say is that eating is a, you actually really reinforce is that eating is a learned behavior and that even an entire food culture can change um so can you give us an example of one food culture that has changed over time and how it happened Yes. I think I'm going to talk, since we've been talking a lot about children, I'm going to talk about Finland. I loved writing this. The last chapter is called Change, and I loved writing it because it left me full of optimism for the potential for anyone to change, and particularly children. So in Finland, um, around 10 years ago, they noticed that they had worse um, rates of child obesity compared to their neighbors in the rest of Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden. And they decided to do something about it. So they pioneered this whole new method of food education in preschools. It's called Sapere. It's based on a system that had already been used in France. And the idea is instead of going into schools and giving kids lectures on healthy eating or you should eat this number of fruit and vegetables a day, it's learning about food through play, through the senses. So the children might have sessions, this is very Finnish, where they taste five different kinds of berries and discuss whether they prefer cloud berries or lingonberries. Or they might go out foraging, or they might taste very sour lemon and talk about how that makes their mouth feel. So none of it's kind of judgment calls and saying, you should eat this. Mm-hmm. It's just exposing children to as many flavors as possible. And I just heard um, I'm in contact with some people who are trying to bring the Sapari system to Britain. And one of them came back from a conference and said so in one school he'd um, spoken to in Finland, they had this idea that if a child could learn 200 tastes in two years, that would be a great objective. I just that's wonderful. I, I kind of want to learn 200 tastes right. in the next two years. It's so positive. Um, and it's very early days, so it's hard to produce lots and lots of evidence to say this has completely changed the health of a nation. But it seems 
that it has already, from what teachers are saying, the great problem always with changing an entire food culture is you know, how do you reach the parents? You know, right. The reason the children eat badly is largely because of what they eat at home. Right. But the beauty of this is that the children are turning around and saying to their parents, we ate this great purple vegetable today, and I think it was called beetroot, and it changed the color of the water when it was cooking. And Can you, you buy it? some, please? Yeah. Um, well, how do you... Okay, so, so kind of working through the kids to get to the parents. The question then is, how do you reach the grown-ups that don't have kids? Um, and I, that really worries me, because I think we talk so much about kids and school food is crucial. I mean, it is one of the few areas where you can intervene. But lots of us are really lost when it comes to food. And I wish that somehow governments would come up with some kinds of policies for reaching the rest of us, because it's, it's so sad that so many of us should be made unhappy and unhealthy by food, which should be one of life's great joys. What do you think the role of um, big food is in changing our food culture? Like, is it is it possible to make this change towards healthier food without involving industry? I think industry has to be part of it because they're so responsible for so many of the ways in which our palate has become corrupted and skewed towards, well, it gets referred to by nutritionists as the SFS palette that we all have now, sugar, fat, salt. Mm-hmm. Um, so insofar as they've created the problem, I would love to see them help fix it. <laughs> yeah. um, if there is, absolutely, there are ways in which industry could be brought on side. It's, there are little signs of people showing it can also be profitable to sell people food that actually does your body good, um, and that's win-win because then your consumers are probably going to live longer and continue <laughs> buying your product longer. I mean, yeah. I'd hope that that might appeal to the food industry, if nothing else. Yeah. I, it, it has to involve industry, but I think there has to be way bigger government intervention on this. And I'm so happy that a few cities such as Philadelphia are starting to implement soda taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I mean, those are maybe more subtle changes. You kind of talk about the difference between, you know, being told to do something and um, kind of subtly nudging people um, in, in one direction or another. Yeah, I mean, things like soda taxes or, I mean, I thought Mayor Bloomberg's suggestion of reducing the size of a standard bottle of soda seemed such a good idea. And I was amazed that it was met with such kind of outrage and consternation because clearly we're very susceptible to environment and those kind of things. It's not saying ban these products, you know. They're a treat. We all like them sometimes. Sugar is delicious. Right. But sugar was never meant to be a staple food. And when it's reached the point that the sugar in 80% of all items for sale in the supermarket, something needs to be done to adjust the environment back again just to make it easier for people, especially people on low incomes, to make good choices. Right. How long, you know, talking about this theme of change, how long did you find in your research it took to reshape an adult's food preference? It depends. I mean, if you're looking at an individual change in palate, such as changing your palate for sweetness or salt, mm-hmm. really short time. It only takes, there was lots of studies done showing if you want to get a less salty palate, that takes about six weeks of eating less salt consistently. And then very, very salty products such as salty popcorn or pretzels will just seem too salty to you after that point. 
you will have adjusted. Um, And the same with sugar. If you could take a fortnight away from sugar, you would suddenly notice that soda would be almost undrinkable. It would be so sugary. Um, But the question of how you change habit is so much harder because what you're trying to do is actually eradicate memory. I mean, the problem is that so many of our feelings about junk food are tied up with lots of other feelings that are good and pure and true to do with family and to do with sitting around a table having fun with our siblings. Right. Um, And that takes, I would say, months, if not years. And you may never fully sever that emotional connection. I still have these sort of strange, warm, fuzzy feelings about lots of junk foods that I never actually eat anymore. Yeah. Because I no longer find them delicious, yet I still kind of associate them with going to the cinema or being with my family or celebrating birthdays. I am. Um, I'm going to, I mean, what, what should I do? So I have this um, memory of eating uh, cooked carrots, steamed carrots. And all, even though my mom is a phenomenal cook, um, I still, like, I they make me nauseous. I love raw carrots, cooked carrots. I can't get near them. And I would really love to learn how to enjoy them at least roasted. Because <laughs> that's how I, I like all vegetables. Roasted, yeah. I'm assuming that she steamed or boiled them. Yes, yes she steamed them. And um, and so like uh, my poor mother, because she really is a, a fabulous cook, but I can't to this day stomach them. So what is, what is a way that I could gradually over time, like should I use the tiny taste method? mechanism? I would use the tiny taste method. And the additional thing that you can do alongside the tiny taste method is if you pair an unliked food with a loved food, Mm -hmm. then you're much more likely to love it. So not in huge chunks that you don't want to sort of put the carrot with one of your favorite dinners and only eat that. And then you just think, oh, I've just tainted this thing that I love. (laughs) But you roast it. Yeah, I was going to suggest you cook it in some form that seems completely new, so it's no longer even like a carrot. Carrot soup, have you tried delicious roasted carrot soup and then very, very smooth? That might seem completely different. Yeah, Yeah. Um, Uh, that's a good idea. But or, Or tiny, tiny chunks of the roasted carrot in with something else in a salad so it's almost just like an ingredient that you can't quite and then gradually increase it i mean it, yeah if you sounds as if you're motivated to make the change i am yes and that was a, one of the key points you make in in the book in terms of individual change the need to have the um like anything else the the desire yeah. first to to do so b thank you so very much for coming on thank the show today so i loved our okay. conversation Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Um, all right. Uh, I also want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with help from Taylor Lenzette, and our music is by the fabulously talented Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, Pierre Bienemy. All of our episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. You can also email us at eat, Eating Matters at Heritage Radio Network or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute and thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.